Hello and a warm collisions YYC. Welcome to my guest today, Mr. Philippe Lucas. How are you, sir? I'm good. Great to be here, Tyler. Thanks so much for coming on. We were joking before we got on. You and I met about well, almost a year ago, maybe whatever, in a cat on a cat skiing trip with some mutual friends, and uh, we both we both uh, identified that that was probably the best way to meet and to kind of get to know somebody going up and down the hill. So certainly makes for a good hey. Do you remember that time uh, story when you start uh, when you reconnect? <laughs> Absolutely, it was a, it was a great time, and I'm happy we have a chance to reconnect, although not on the slopes this time. No, but uh, well, whatever. We'll see. We'll see where it goes. We'll see where it goes. Third, there's always up to our third date. Um, I forgot a key thing, Philippe Lucas, PhD, and you are the president at Savvy Mind. So I love to jump into the pitch elevators right away or, <laughs> or the, 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 the elevator pitch elevator and give everybody an opportunity to understand what is, what is Savvy Mind? What do you guys do? What role do you play in the world? And then let's pick up the conversation from there. Yeah, sure. Savvy Mind is a uh, psychedelic clinic group based out of Alberta. We've had a, uh, a clinic in operation uh, in Calgary since March of last year, where we uh, treat people for intractable or treatment-resistant mental health and chronic pain conditions. Um, we've got a clinic in Edmonton that's going to be opening up in about uh, the next six to eight weeks, and another clinic in Victoria that'll be opening up in six to eight weeks as well. Uh, oh, our nice. primary modality right now is uh, ketamine, which we uh, deliver via intramuscular injections. And we're just waiting uh, and in the final stages of being licensed, I think, as the first Alberta community-based clinic to do IV ketamine uh, for uh, mental health and chronic pain as well as a psychedelic clinic. And so we're just waiting for the initial feedback following our inspection from the uh, College of Physicians. And we're a very evidence-based uh, clinic. We take this very biomedical approach. So we've got psychiatry and anesthesiology on site, uh, nurses, uh, psychologists, and psychotherapists. and uh, But it's all within, uh, in our Calgary clinic anyway, within the uh, kind of setting of a kind of a Japanese modernist tea house. So very pleasant setting, conducive to healing. And we do a lot of data gathering at Savvy as well. So we uh, track the progress of our patients from baseline, and then we follow up at two weeks, a month, three months, and six months after treatment in order to see how these uh, uh, psychedelic-assisted treatments impact people's lives, their quality of life, and, uh, and overall their symptoms and their conditions as well. That was a fantastic. We need more floors, but that was uh, that was that was not the first time you've jumped in that elevator. I, I, I would say <laughs> I've been to your facility. I was lucky enough to uh, go to one of the open houses in the early days, and it is an absolutely beautiful. The, the set and setting aspect of what you brought together at that facility was was fantastic. So for anyone who hasn't seen it, I will echo the 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 Japanese tea house. It's uh, it's you, you could just want to hang out there. It's such it's such a great vibe, which plays such a huge part, which we'll touch on. Talk to me a little bit about why Calgary first. Was there a regulatory? Was there a strategy? Because I know you you're calling in calling in you're we're talking to you you're in victoria i'm in i'm in calgary and it's just down in sun alta for anyone who's listening on, online here in calgary so you know really central really easy access why Calgary? Uh, was there a, was there a strategy around first on the list? The uh, the two founders of uh, Savvy Mind, Hugh Su Cho and uh, Sean Farnham, are Calgary natives, and okay. they really wanted to 
help out the folks in Calgary as a primary uh, target. And so they not only had a lot of connections there and had uh, uh, some resources, knew some good people they wanted to work with in Calgary, but, uh, but really wanted to focus on improving the, the uh, mental health and, uh, and pain treatments in the Calgary area. Uh, the other philosophy between kind of Calgary, Edmonton and Victoria is, is uh, providing services in underserved areas. So in Toronto and Vancouver right now, there are a number of existing uh, ketamine clinics. And for us, we really wanted to focus on these underserved, mid-sized Canadian co- uh, communities and municipalities. And so it's worked out really well. We've got a, a steady flow of patients. Uh, we're a referral-only uh, clinic, although if uh, if you don't have a physician, you can contact us and uh, we might be able to connect you with a, a family physician that would be uh, able to do an assessment for you as well. But ultimately, it's been, it's been really great. And it's worth mentioning, though, that we also have a few patients who come in to see us from out of province. And so we have a unique suite of services within a, uh, a very distinct setting. And some people are seeking that out specifically as word gets out about Savvy Mind. Oh, amazing. So I don't know if this is confidential, no need to share it. How many patients have you had kind of go through your experience or through the center? Because you've been open for just coming up on a year, like almost not quite, but basically in March. How many patients have you guys been able to help so far? We've had, um, you know, in terms of exact numbers, we've had, um, I'd say over 50 patients have come through to see us uh, so far. Most patients who see Savvy Mind um, and who use our services are doing more than one treatment. They do four to six treatments typically in terms of uh, uh, the ketamine-administered sessions. And uh, it's typically one treatment a week. And so one Hmm. patient going through their um, their uh, preliminary kind of period where we do the assessment and then uh, set the intentions as they prepare for their experiential journey, then the journey, and then uh, following that, the integration session typically takes about a, a week in total from one to the next. And so people okay. who are seeing us for four to six weeks might be under our care for, uh, for a month uh, to two months at, at a time. Okay, I appreciate unpacking that. And, and I do love the, there are sometimes conversations I get into around psychedelics where people are like, oh, I just do, it's just a one and done. Like I just do the thing and then all the problems are solved, which we'll get into a little bit because that's clear, that's not the case. And I certainly, like anything, there is no magic bullet, but there certainly is some amazing substances that can facilitate a process that maybe has been inaccessible for individuals before. Talk to us, a, talk to me a little bit about, ke, ke, what, like, I guess, why ketamine to, to really short, short question it. <laughs> uh, we're really interested in ketamine for a number of reasons reasons. It has some unique properties. The immediate and rapid antidepressant, anti-suicidal effects are really notable with ketamine mm-hmm. and uh, differentiated a little bit from some of the more classic uh, psychedelics um, in that um, we definitely want to use uh, ketamine in a similar way as people are using high-dose psilocybin, uh, high-dose MDMA in order to create an altered state. Uh, with okay. ketamine, you can get a full kind of ego dissolution effect. And we feel that that in combination with the pharmacological properties of ketamine that include these uh, antidepressant effects um, can really lead to long-term changes in people's mental health and even their chronic pain syndromes. And so we're very interested in that. It's also worth mentioning that ketamine is incredibly safe as a substance. It's the most commonly used anesthetic anywhere in the world. It's on the uh, UN essential medicines list. And, you know, I've got a 14-year-old daughter. She had a ski accident and dislocated her shoulder. 
shoulder and showed up the ER, they'd quite likely give her ketamine in order to relocate uh, the shoulder. So this is even uh, something that's safely used in ER and OR uh, purposes with uh, with kids and otherwise. And, and it, yeah, so the, the high level of safety was really interesting to us. And from a pragmatic point of view, it's also the only legally available uh, psychedelic substance right now outside of the special access program or clinical trials. And so from a pragmatic pr- uh, perspective, we really wanted to provide these deep, uh, powerful experiences to folks using uh, what was available right now to us as well. I appreciate that. I've I've heard, and maybe you can validate that also the medical community are much more comfortable because it's something they were trained on. It's been part of their it's been part of their world. So the idea you mentioned, if you don't have a, a doctor to refer, talk to us because we have a list of doctors you can chat with. Have you also found that the buy in from the medical the the medical community has been maybe easier or more forthcoming simply because of that? That, yeah, I think that the fact that ketamine has a DIN or a drug identification number mm. is otherwise known and is used in every major hospital uh, in Canada and throughout North America and really around the world makes uh, gives a level of comfort for um, physicians um, and uh, uh, even psychiatry that were so resistant in some cases to the use of medical cannabis. And I've got a long background in that as well. Okay. Um, they have really come on board and um, led the charge in terms of uh, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Um, And there's a lot of excitement in the mental health field because there hasn't been a new treatment for mental health uh, really since SSRIs in terms of pharmacological treatment. So for the last 30 to 40 years, we haven't had anything novel. And this is uh, certainly proving to be very promising. You mentioned earlier about you know tr- the word treatment resistant being kind of a, a pre qualifier for some of these challenges. You mentioned like thirty to forty years we've had kind of access to the same toolkit. To over, I'm really oversimplifying, so I apologize for anyone who works in the, in the space. But the reality of treatment resistant, how prevalent is that, and how much how motivated are you know practitioners or individuals to try something new simply because I'll be blunt, what they're doing isn't working or not giving them the life that they want to live. Yeah, mental health conditions are notoriously hard to treat from a pharmacological point of view. And most people who have uh, uh, severe or long time or uh, chronic mental health conditions use a combination of talk therapy and pharmacological agents. But in terms of the pharmacological agents, they might go through three or four different treatments on SSRIs and other agents before finding something that even gives them a modicum of relief. Um, and even in those cases where they're, you know, you could consider that a successful treatment, they find that they still have a wide ranging symptomology. In other words, it might take care of some of their issues, but, but not all of them. And so uh, treatment resistant is unfortunately a very common pattern when it comes to the treatment of mental health, because we don't have a lot of tools at our disposal uh, right now that are safe and effective. I appreciate that reality. Is that also maybe the risk or sometimes where this gets seen as or communicated as or looked at as as a bit of a magic, I don't want to say magic pill, but a magic answer to like, oh, this is, and I know when you're, when you're struggling or where you're looking to make improvements in your life and you're finding you're just, you know, you're losing more ground than you're gaining, the promise or the hope that something like this can give can be misplaced, but also can be very um, energizing for individuals. And I don't want to take away the positive side of that too, right? <laughs> no, absolutely not. I think that you're right. I think that a lot of people who see us have heard uh, or read good outcomes associated with ketamine and psychedelic uh, therapies in general. And they come to us with a great deal of hope. We want, of course, to nurture that hope, but we're also very realistic about the chances of success, the fact that this is not going to be effective for everyone uh, that goes through these treatments. And uh, we want to make sure that we 
balance out that level of hope with a level, you know, with a dose of reality about what the the odds are of treatment success. Now, I'm I'm very pleased to share that at Savvy, we have had uh, a good deal of success in treating a lot of our patients, say that 70% of our patients get at least some improvement in their condition. And in Mm. fact, in some of the measures that we're tracking on anxiety, on depression, we're seeing fairly significant changes. The the first data analysis that we did internally showed a 52% decrease in uh, the GAD7 score for anxiety in our uh, patients with mental health conditions. And uh, that's at three months compared to baseline. And we also saw a 40% decrease in their uh, quit score, which is uh, a score of depression, and a 22% increase in social connectedness uh, and their score on social connectedness, which is one of the facets that we see our commonality with the use of psychedelic treatments, this improvement in connection to self, others, nature, and spirit. And so Right now, we're very um, pleased with the results that we're seeing, but we've also seen some folks, to be clear, where um, they've had a pleasant experience, but it doesn't seem to have been the kind of life-changing event that they hoped it might be. And so uh, certainly those are the, uh, the, you you see both in this business. Those are some very impressive numbers. Thank you for knowing your numbers as well as you did too. I love like, well, let me lay it out for you. Let me give you some of the statistics. So curious from the perspective of I'm listening to this going, great, I maybe have heard about it or maybe I'm aware. I'm looking to get more informed. What are some of the, you know, either the medical side of it or the neurological pathways versus the spiritual? And you you said that connection to spirit, connecting to nature, maybe the qual and the, you've, you've laid out some of the quantitative numbers when I think qualitatively, what's actually happening? Like if I'm, if I'm listening to this and go, okay, I take this substance and things will be better later. Why? What? What are some of the mechanisms that you've seen or that you can identify? Uh, maybe some spiritual, maybe some just purely the, the science of, of neuroplasticity. Yeah, I think I want to be clear about what we know and we don't know about what's happening. What we know for sure is that, as I kind of mentioned, there's this biological or pharmacological response that creates a, a rapid antidepressive uh, antidepressant effect and also anti-suicidal effect. And so we, we've since found out that if you show up at a Calgary hospital right now, uh, like Foothills with uh, suicidality, they'll actually put you on a ketamine drip immediately. That's kind of the, oh, interesting. the, the, the I, I treatment know that. protocol. Hmm. Yeah. And so that and so we, we benefit certainly from that with our patient base of that rapid antidepressant effect. But to, to kind of bring you into that world a little bit, what you would have would be, you know, you'd spend an hour, an hour and a half on the day before or, you know, a few days before your initial treatment with a psychotherapist and you would talk about um, yourself, the challenges that you're wanting to overcome and maybe set some intentions about where you'd like to go during this journey, this kind of deep inner journey that's produced by, um, by the intramuscular ketamine injection. Um, on the day of, you would show up and you'd actually um, be in contact with a nurse at that point that over, would oversee your treatment. Um, you'd go to one of the treatment rooms, you'd select the kind of music that you want to listen to. It's A lot of it is kind of soft, tonal music. We have our, um, our soundtracks, and we have about eight different ones right now produced by a music producer in Vancouver called Michael Red. He does these exclusively for Savvy Mind, and they're quite wonderful, ranging from all nature sounds to more kind of wandering uh, electronic sounds to more traditional musical sounds as well. Um, so you would put on your eye shades, typically, although it's optional, and put on either a headphone or we'd have a small uh, speaker playing. 
Uh, anesthesiologist, uh, Dr. Craig Pierce or Dr. Kelly Shinkrock would come in and give you your injection. Um, the nurse would watch over you. Within about five minutes, you'd feel a warmth and uh, start feeling a slight disassociation where you begin this internal journey um, that is very different from one individual to the next and lasts about 90 minutes in time. During that period of time, you might revisit some past traumas, but in a setting and in a feeling that doesn't give you the same trauma or re-traumatize or anxiety, you may be able to resolve some personal relationship issues uh, with friends, family, or loved ones. And, uh, or you may just have a, a very pleasant experience separating you and your depression or your chronic pain, which is if you've been suffering this for 20 years, just that 90 minute separation from your your pain, anxiety, or depression can be an incredible <laughs> feeling of relief as well. And, and it could be, that would be so energizing, I can imagine. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And then as you come back into your ordinary self, the nurse would ask you if there are any themes that came up that you'd want to share with a psychotherapist uh, during your integration session, which typically takes place within 24 hours, not on the same mm, day. Okay, 24 hours after. So you have, a, you have a time to kind of process and ruminate, if you will, in, in what happened. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. We want people to have a chance to really give some thought as to what's been happening. We don't mm. find it that this particular substance, ketamine, is that conducive for psychotherapeutic uh, uh, kind of uh, exchanges and dialogue on the day of. And so we typically wait till the day after to do an integration uh, when the, the client has had a chance to really give some thought as to what they've been through, try and make some sense of it. Of course, that's what we're here to help with as well, to try and um, uh, in integrate the learnings of that ketamine experience into the everyday lives of individuals to try and lengthen the, and deepen the potential healing uh, effects. So the nurse is sitting with you the, the entire, for the 90 minutes? That's right. The nurse is uh, occasionally taking uh, uh, your blood pressure and some uh, some bio doing a few uh, biological measures in order to make sure that uh, you're doing well. But we've never had an issue because ketamine okay. is, is so remarkably safe. And so there's someone watching over you. And so <laughs> the setting allows you to go very deep knowing that you've got this kind of biomedical supervision. Um, but at the same time, you're in this lovely a uh, comfortable, warm setting where you can uh, explore your inner self. And uh, assuming, um, and of course, my own belief in set and setting playing such a critical role in, in setting that individual up to have the experience you just described. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We want people to really feel that they're able to leave their everyday existence, their ordinary life behind mm -hmm. them, uh, and to deepen their experience. And the nice thing about our, our clients taking, in some cases, four or six different uh, experiences or therapy sessions this way is that um, they can get more familiar with the space that, uh, mm. that the ketamine brings them into this kind of altered state and can uh, go deeper as they feel more comfortable within that space. Because I think initially on, on a single uh, session, it can be quite overwhelming because there's a lot of visual stimuli. <laughs> um, it can be, yeah, it can be, you know, and in some cases very disorienting, but by the second or third or fourth session, uh, you've gotten quite used to that and you know exactly where you want to dwell and what you want to focus on and work on. And those, that intention mm. setting and the work with a psychotherapist is very important for that. I like the idea of, you know, the, 
I, I'm familiar now, so now I can explore. Now I can go deeper. Almost the, the the setting that you become in mentally allows you some freedom to go. Oh, I'm going to go a little bit deeper next time. Do you find that a lot of the patients that you've um, been able to work with have had past psychedelic experiences, good, bad, or indifferent? Or the you know, I did LSD when I was you know 14 and had a terrible time and never did it again. And maybe I'm assuming you guys get into that because I've had people say to me like, Oh, geez, you know, I better start with something small before I ever go do that. I'm like, no, I don't think that's necessarily the formula. But has that? I'm assuming that's part of the induction process with understanding their past relationship to psychedelics, positive or otherwise? Yeah, we do uh, uh, gather a lot of data on substance use in general, or uh, uh, how much tobacco, alcohol, and other uh, Mm. substances they might be using. We would actually expect to see a decline in the use of those substances, even legal substances like alcohol and tobacco. Uh, post-ketamine, and we're still breaking uh, down that data, but we do feel that psychedelic experiences in general tend to, because of that, you know, rebuilding the relationship with self and and, and others and spirit um, can address some of the issues around substance use disorders and even just uh, moderate problematic substance use and uh, can uh, self-correct some of those courses as well. So we do Hmm. see declines in the use of other substances. But you're absolutely right. About half of our uh, participants have had previous uh, experiences with psychedelics, either at a younger age in university or otherwise, or maybe they're microdosing as so many people are right now. Hmm. Um, But in uh, most cases, they haven't had um, a deep ketamine experience um, and uh, this kind of ego dissolution effect um, that can be so uh, successfully produced and safely produced using ketamine. I appreciate that. Um, we talk about ego dissolution and the death of the ego and ego death. And those are a lot of terms that come up, uh, I'd say, frequently when you get down this rabbit hole. Uh, neurologically, of course, I've read, you know, as we all have, maybe the Michael Pollan book or some of the books that are out recently that really talk about, oh, we put someone in an fMR machine and we get fMRI mm-hmm. machine and we gave them psychedelics. And this part of the brain, I think the default mode network shut down, which then allowed these connections. And is there neurologically a very clear, you know, series of events that's happening to allow that part of that, you know, and I'm being very compartmentalized, that part of your brain that really manages everything, aka some of the, where the ego lives, to go offline? Is that part of what's happening? I'm just curious of the actual chemistry and, you know, neurologically, what's going on in there while I'm having this journey? Yeah, and I think that that's still an ongoing debate, but we mm. are learning more and more about um, what might be causing this cascade of events. And it certainly seems to be associated with uh, serotonin and receptors and uh, the impact that uh, these substances have either directly or indirectly on uh, on serotonin but i think that um uh it's it's it still doesn't explain exactly what's going on there was a thought when we'd start doing brain scans of people on psychedelics that there'd be an uptick on a lot of uh in terms of overall stimulation so that finding that there was a reduction in default mode network was really fascinating and helped shift an understanding about what's going Mm -hmm. on which is that in our everyday existence we kind of build up our ego and our protections through patterns that we go through in life um that leads to a lot of predictability it also means that you know we're only 10, 15,000 years from living in caves and having to flee predators. And so it allows you to focus on the things that are important in life. So you're not picking up all the stimuli around yourself. You're kind of fo- focusing your stimuli. And you also, at the same time, construct a feeling about who you are 
individually and within society. And um, that's done through uh, biological responses, but of course, through a lot of learning as well. And so once you can peel back the onion a little bit about who we are, how we construct ourselves, uh, who we are within, you know, within this, our everyday life and settings, you can get back to the core idea of what it is to be a human being, what it is to be, let's say, a father, a husband, uh, a mother, a sister, uh, a daughter. And I think that, and on also just a living being amongst all the living beings in, in this universe, I don't want to sound too airy-fairy about this, mm-hmm. but that is a key core component um, that that happens across, uh, that's maybe a commonality in all of the psychedelic substances, except maybe for MDMA, which doesn't okay. typically cause ego dissolution. It doesn't cause that kind of, uh, that biggest separation from the self. But that commonality may be an indication of why um, these substances are so effective in treating a number of different mental health conditions, mm-hmm. but okay. also a number of different addictions. In other words, they don't seem to be very specific that, you know, psilocybin will only work for tobacco use disorder or alcohol use disorder, but not with opioids or with stimulants. I think that getting to that core of ego dissolution, that feeling of oneness with others, with the self, that feeling of self-love that can be regained, which is often at the core of addiction, a lack of self-love and self-regard, if you can start, if that can be your starting point, then that you can rebuild your ego on top of, um, I think that that can lead to uh, basically like resetting your computer, getting out of the typical ruts that you're in, in your everyday life that may be contributing to long-term depression, long-term chronic pain conditions, long-term substance use disorders, and trying new pathways and developing new pathways um, through the literally the production of new neurons and uh, neuroplasticity that that offers as well in the brain. The rewiring, but also the rebuilding. It's hard at this point in our conversation to not really tread into the two sides of, okay, here's what's happening neurologically, chemically. We've got some suspicions. But like you said, this connection to the bigger universe around us into humanity and the spirit really is an interesting dialogue. And I know that sometimes people I talk to, there's two schools of thought. We're coming at this from a very medical and very clinical approach. And then there's the other school, which no, no, this is purely about spirit and our disconnection from spirit. And the rest is almost irrelevant because that's what we're after. Uh, listening to you talk, I feel that there's a, there, there's still an opportunity for a bit of a blurry line there. <laughs> I, I think there is. And I think we have to be open uh, to, we have to really listen closely to people's experiences. You know, I, I'm a researcher and academic. I study cannabis and psychedelics, but really what I see my role as is translating the experience of patients and end users into data that can help us understand um, what's going on with cannabis use or with psychedelic use. And so it's about translating that end user experience in a way that that helps create uh, safe pathways to access. Um, We take a lot of measures, as I mentioned, if you join Savvy Mind, we'll gather some baseline measures on anxiety, depression, chronic pain, quality of life, etc. But we actually gather one measure on the day of your experience. We use a, a scale called the AWE scale that was developed by David Yaden and others at Johns Hopkins University. And um, it's uh, kind of an alternative tool this, to another tool that was commonly used called the Mystical Experience Scale. And the awe scale measures in 30 measure in, in 30 questions, basically, the level of awe that you've experienced during your psychedelic journey. And the 
belief is that the higher the level of awe, the more, uh, basically the higher chance that you're going to find some healing effects from that. Now that's still being tested out. There is some preliminary data that suggests that people who do have a more uh, significant awe experience or mystical experience do see greater healing or positive outcomes. But I, I think we're still kind of working some of that out. And it's worth mentioning that there are academics out there who are trying to develop uh, psychedelics uh, or psychedelic focused treatments that don't have psychedelic effects. And so they're taking yeah, molecules. I've, read, like, I've, read, yeah. I've read a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, you know, I think it's worthwhile looking for those treatments, but I strongly believe having been involved in, you know, mm -hmm. researching psychedelics for some time, that it's going to be very hard to find the depth and profundity of healing that we see without those deep altered states uh, that psychedelics create. Without the awe, without the awe factor. Without yeah, the no, awe, exactly. Um, I, thank you. That was, a, that was I appreciate that answer. For the mystic scale, I didn't hear the awe scale. I, I love that. As someone who's had some of these experiences, I can think the ones with the bigger awe absolutely without question had profound impacts. And it was like, oh, now, you know, listening to some of the information that's coming to John Hopkins and some of the interviews that are on some of the, the Netflix specials that are floating around that we can all access. When you listen to those individuals describe the experiences they had, and then you yourself then go, and you have an experience similar, you go, oh, now, now I understand what they're talking about. But before that, it's almost an intellectual exercise to understand it until you've had a peer into it. But that's, a, anyways, I, I digress on that one. Um, Curious about some of the other substances, you know, obviously ketamine, and you're very clear of, of why you, you've gone down that path and why you've chosen it. But psilocybin being a great one, LSD, you know, you mentioned microdosing. So many people I know, five years ago, nobody at a dinner party was microdosing. Now it's like 50% of the people in the room and people you might not think, and you can take that one with a grain of salt because what does that mean? But I'm in an executive group and I make, I mentioned it and four people after go, uh, hey, hey, can we talk about that? <laughs> Where two years ago, they would have looked at me like I had two heads, but that's another, you know, that's another story. Curious about some of the other substances and, and how they're starting to come on and gain more acceptance and maybe work their way into an option at a clinic like Sabi Mine. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm really looking forward to discussing these and we'll go back to microdosing in a minute. I do want to mention <laughs> I that I skimmed over that one really quickly. <laughs> no, I'm really, I'm really interested in it as well because I see some, uh, some interesting dynamics happening around that. Uh, it's worth mentioning that Savvy Mine is about to start a phase two clinical trial of psilocybin uh, for alcohol use disorder. We're very oh, excited okay. about this That's study. That's really interesting. Yeah, we're actually, um, we're taping this the day before we we uh, do a press release on this. And so by the time this airs, um, this will be announced to the world. So I'm, I'm sharing it with you first, literally. But I love, I love it. This isn't usually up. a bleeding edge news show. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it won't be by the time it comes out, but just so everyone knows it was happening. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so we're really keen. We're going to be the first Alberta site to be using uh, psilocybin as a treatment for alcohol use disorder. It's a combination therapy. So the psilocybin along with uh, psychotherapy. And um, we're, um, yeah, yeah, we're working with um, a company called Clairvoyant that's developing this uh, particular treatment for alcohol use disorder. And we're very excited to be able to offer another substance, another treatment modality to uh, patients in Calgary who might qualify for this, uh, for this particular study. The nice thing is there'll be no cost to those study participants. And in fact, they're compensated oh, for their participation. So yeah, we, we are, our entire team cannot wait to work with this, uh, with these participants, these study participants, and then get this underway and to add to the level of knowledge on the therapeutic potential of uh, of psilocybin, which is, of course, 
actually the most commonly used psychedelic in Canada, as we know from the results of the Canadian Psychedelic Survey that we did last year, and certainly the most accessible of the uh, of the psychedelic substances, which brings us a little bit to the microdosing you were talking about. I don't know about you, Tyler, but this, what's the kind of hype around microdosing, and I don't want to use that term pejoratively because there okay. may be good reasons for the hype, but yep. but the enthusiasm around micro, microdosing reminds me a lot of what we saw with CBD 10 years ago or eight mm, years the ago. Magic an- the magic answer scenario. Yeah, it seemed like yep. everyone thought, you know, there was a sense of this could really help a lot of people. We don't have a lot of data on, you know, what CBD does. It it may be helpful. It has a very low potential for harm, so there may be no harm in trying it. And, you know, I knew that CBD had kind of crossed a path when my father-in-law came off the golf course. I mean, I'd been involved in the cannabis industry for 25 years, and he came off the golf course and said, my buddy talked to me about CBD. He says it really helps. And I said, yeah, I've been saying that for 15 years, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Those parents, I know know those moments you're like, okay, I guess, all right, then yes, (laughs) Whatever gets you there. Okay. But yeah, that's, I appreciate that. (laughs) Exactly. I guess George has convinced you that CBD is a helpful medication, but we're seeing a lot of the same thing right now where people are microdosing. There's a, seems to be a low potential for harm. uh, Despite the, you know, my concern is that um, with the lack of legal regulated supply, we still, you know, people who are ordering online or yeah, buying what, these. What, like, what, do you, what do you buy or beware a little bit, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I don't think we're worried, as we discussed earlier, you know, uh, in our kind of preamble to the to the taping about contamination when it comes to psilocybin. I don't think that we're, we're in terms of contamination with uh, yeah. carfentanil or anything like that. But these mushrooms are notoriously hard to grow. They're susceptible to molds. This is basically a food product. And I would love to know, and I would take greater comfort knowing that there was some quality control, some dose control on uh, for folks who are, you know, dabbling in microdosing or other uses of psilocybin in Canada and ordering online or otherwise. I think that really also speaks to kind of the wild west of the supplement industry in general, the naturopathic supplements and some of the stories. And you read studies like, oh, we took five of the or 10 of these substances that were supposed to have X and then we tested them. No consistency. Some had none whatsoever. You know, even... Um, Melatonin. I read a study about melatonin the other day and kind of the wild west of like buyer beware and, you know, a relatively benign subject, a substance, but taking too much can cause adverse effects and how just unregulated that is, which I think as consumers, if it's in a bottle on a shelf in a store, we give it a little bit more um, weight than we maybe should sometimes about, you know, what's on that label. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that's exactly right. And then we found even in studies in Canada of legally available CBD products, there's uh, sometimes a wide a significant difference between what the amount of CBD that's that's labeled and the amount of THC and the actually what's contained in each in each uh, product, and I think that with psychedelics, um, those differences certainly in dosage and in quality can have really deep impacts on folks. I think that we often talk about psychedelics being relatively safe agents, and in many cases they are psilocybin. Uh, you know, has is a, a fairly safe substance for occasional uses. Uh, we don't know what happens with the hypertonality that happens when people are microdosing over extended periods of time. It could be very positive, but we simply don't have 
have uh, the data uh, to see how that might be impacting people's lives otherwise. And of course, if you're expecting a microdose and instead getting a macrodose, that could really change your day considerably. That really changes your morning, your 10 o'clock meetings. <laughs> exactly. For sure, it does. Yeah, it does. So um, I think I'm going to have to turn my camera off here for a second, folks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I think it's important for, for us to look at alternative regulatory pathways beyond just the special access program, which is the only way for Canadians to legally access uh, psilocybin right now uh, in Canada. Well, coming out of the can- clinical trials. Coming out of the cannabis industry, are you seeing, you know, from a health Canada perspective, that there's maybe some lessons learned and a slow down approach? Because I know that financially there was a lot of people that jumped on like, oh, you know, psychedelics is the next thing. And all of a sudden, financially, there was a lot of negative impacts, you know, nationally with, you know, fresh money coming out of cannabis, moving to psychedelics, expecting a similar path or maybe a similar return has certainly been communicated for a few of my friends that did not get the return that they were hoping for in that space. (laughs) Is that a lessons learned? And we're just taking a bit of a different approach, thinking positively about uh, maybe the government's role in all this? I think that what we're seeing right now with psychedelics is moving a little bit quicker than we saw with cannabis. But it depends what your starting point okay. is. I mean, uh, if okay, you go back enough. to cannabis yeah. from, yeah, yeah. you know, if you look at cannabis legalization from the point of view of 1923 when it was first made illegal <laughs> to how long it took, yeah. I think that could that could make it seem really long. Let's go back, let's say, to the... Uh, uh, to the 70s with cannabis, you know, okay. when uh, when it was when the war on drugs really started, it took a long time for cannabis to make its way into, you know, from basically an illegal substance to an essential substance as a medicine in Canada. I started working on medical cannabis in 1995, and it was only in 2018 that we had full adult legal use in Canada. But you did get a sense of steady progress. Now, the one thing about cannabis and cannabis legalization. Um, is that it created an alternative dialogue about ways to regulate substances. So if we weren't going to use a purely criminal justice prohibitionist approach for cannabis, and if by legalizing it and regulating access to adults only and putting in quality controls, etc., if that was successful and we didn't see any associated public health impacts, negative impacts. And I, I think it's fair to say that in Canada, that's that we the haven't case. seen that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that maybe there's other ways to regulate other substances, be they psychedelics or be they uh, substances that are often associated with uh, greater dangers or harms like opioids, stimulants, et cetera. And I, the one thing I can tell you as an academic for the last 20, 25 years is that I've never seen a single paper that suggested that prohibition made, first of all, achieved <laughs> any of its goals of reducing <laughs> use, keeping drugs out of the hands of kids, improving public health or public safety. It certainly has not done that. But it's also made the use of every substance under drug prohibition more dangerous because it it uh, motivates the concentration of these substances. Yeah. It isolates users. So they're using in alleys or basements instead of using in supervised consumption sites. It reduces the odds they're going to seek help if they have problems, be they yeah. immediate OD or long-term substance use disorders. So I honestly believe that, you know, no matter In fact, the more dangerous the substance, the more motivation there should be for us to find a way to create a regulated access model. Uh, It may look quite different than cannabis, but I think that that's the pathway. Those are the pathways that we should uh, look at because 
Canadians are just like people all around the world are going to seek ways to to, uh, alter their consciousness. And I think that the best thing that we can do is take a public health approach to that and make it as safe as possible. Versus a criminalized. Well, so obviously you you and I are chatting on February 1st, just happened yesterday in BC, the exemption around small amounts of certain substances, you know, opioids, crack, powder cocaine, methamphetamines, and MDMA. To me, that's a substantial move, I would say, in the right direction. I think it's believed 2.5 grams, I think, cumulative, I think is is the number. But to me, that seems like... Uh, that it's just another one of those. Wow, I'm, I'm I didn't know I, I didn't think I'd see that in my lifetime. As someone growing up with cannabis being, you know, persecuted highly to now all of a sudden being accessible, I felt the same way when I read that this morning. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of Canadians um, aren't aware that this is going on. That as of today in British Columbia, the personal possession of 2.5 grams, exactly as you stated, of opioids, of stimulants. Of cocaine or of MDMA, otherwise known as ecstasy, is legal for personal use. Um, And so the idea behind that is that these substances are heavily contaminated in in our drug supply and that by allowing the personal use of a certain amount of these, you're going to incentivize people to get them checked, to get them tested, and to make sure that uh, uh, what they're using is what they hope they're using and what they're intending to use. And hopefully as a result of that um, destigmatize the use a little bit and uh, and the end users of these substances and enable them to take part in a uh, more of a public health system where they can use drug check services and of course if they're in trouble physically um, because of OD or because of a substance use disorder mm-hmm. they can seek the help they need. It's a huge move in a positive direction. Do you see that moving across Canada? You know, there's always been a little bit of that, like, oh, that seems like something BC would do. And, I, you know, that that just because of the necessary, the brand or the stigma around that approach. But I'm assuming that, you know, no one, the being first is the hardest, being second is a little less risky. <laughs> I, I think that's exactly right. I think that you look at uh, municipalities like Toronto that followed Vancouver's suit and putting in uh, supervised mm. consumption sites. I think they're very interested in finding ways to deal with uh, substance use disorder. I think when you look at the prairies, the overcriminalization of indigenous populations uh, there that are filling our, our jail cells for a lot of the time nonviolent drug offenses. I think that there's a lot of motivation to, to be looking at alternative um, uh, regulatory models right now around these substances. So I do hope that it, it, it well, first of all, that it this um, expands beyond the three-year limit that that's on it right now. Yeah, I did notice the 2023 exception. to 2026, but I appreciate why they kind of put a timeline on it just to protect everybody involved <laughs> to maybe make it a little easier to say yes than leave it as an open-ended uh, Yeah, situation. and essentially this is kind of like a study, right? It's a big open-label study about what happens mm, when you so take that's these That's a healthy way to look approaches. at it too. Like, let's pay attention to what actually positive or negative. Like, again, I, I lean towards positive effects that this will have. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think there are some people who are afraid that um, it's going to lead to greater uptake of these substances. I think that what I've learned as an addiction and a substance use researcher is that people who want to use these substances are going to find them, that the black market is very efficient in delivering uh, access to these (laughs) substances. And so that's typically not, you know, it's typically not the law that's stopping individuals from using them. It's just the laws that are making that use uh, far more unsafe. Uh, which is the, the laws are which is what criminalizes it right is the yeah. lever <laughs> yeah and 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 it's worth mentioning that we haven't addressed that purely with these uh with these regulatory changes ultimately until we have a safe regulated legal supply you're still going to see 
uh, rates of overdose, you're still going to see problematic substance use disorder. Um, uh, in no, you've got to look at otherwise. the whole supply. You have to look at the whole supply chain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a great first step, though, and I'm very uh, proud uh, that BC's taking these first steps. No, I, I agree with you. Uh, we'll we'll we'll, t- we'll camp out on a couple more substances, and then we'll maybe kind of round into a little bit more of the business case on you know making this viable and also ex- accessible. LSD, you know, ecstasy, MDMA. Uh, you know, you mentioned 60s, 70s. I think it was originally in Saskatchewan some of the research around LSD back in the 60s tied to um, alcohol abuse and, and alcoholism. Then also some of the studies that are happening in the U.S. around PTSD and working with, uh, with with soldiers and around MDMA. There seems to be lots of little pockets of things that are happening around these different substances. And it seems like certain jurisdictions will latch onto one or, or are more okay or, or more comfortable with one versus the other. Is that kind of how is it happening? And eventually we'll see a little bit of an amalgamation as all this data starts to kind of percolate to the top. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. There's, you know, Canada's got a fascinating history in all this. It It goes back, (laughs) actually, even in the 50s, uh, these were being used in the prairies, in uh, mental, uh, so-called at the time, mental uh, institutions for the treatment of alcohol use disorder and psychotic disorder, that there was a great deal of success that took place in the 50s and 60s in those treatments. At the same time, you had the U.S. government running MKUltra programs. Oh, the rabbit uh, hole in this is so deep and so interesting. It's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, in terms of mind control programs and uh, doing uh, experiments on students at McGill University over that same period as well, trying to weaponize these uh, substances as well. So um, leave, the it the, leave, it the, the, leave it to the CIA. To that, do, that's right. Some I, nefarious I, business. <laughs> we're, we're very fortunate in Canada. I have an amazing academic named Erica Dick that uh, is a historian in the prairies. And she is uh, she's written some great books on the early Canadian history of the psychedelics. And I highly recommend reading The Acid Room and some of her other uh, her other books. They're just beautifully researched and really well written. The thing that I'm fascinated by the history of psychedelics and and prohibition and substance use in general, but the thing that I always keep in mind, Tyler, is that by the time we got to the mid-60s, there were tens of thousands of patients that had used these substances successfully and safely. There were thousands of publications and thousands of physicians and and, uh, mental health practitioners that were working with these substances legally and having great success. And yet, with what happened in the late 60s and the early 70s, the anti-war movement in the U.S., um, the the use of LSD outside of these clinical settings, as well as other psychedelics, um, it all got shut down. So the thing that I always keep in mind is that they had actually made it much further than we have today in terms of the number of patients accessing these substances and the amount of enthusiasm around the success they were having with them. And yet, it all got taken away and we instead had 30, 40 years of of prohibition and um, researchers were no longer able to work with these substances, et cetera. So it's good to bear in mind, um, I think, historically that we've come very far in the past in establishing these as as, as, uh, safe treatments and effective treatments, but that it's all been shut down in the past. We have to, we just have to be aware and tread very carefully um, and uh, and make sure that the the folks who are using these, the studies that are being done with them are well designed, people are well intended, and um, that you don't end up in a similar situation as where we were maybe uh, 30 or 40 years ago with a renewed uh, enthusiasm for prohibition. 
Well, that association to the, you know, the anti, the anti-establishment movement that was happening at the time and how they became married together. Like, there's lots of interesting research around where that kind of got carried away or went off the rails or however you want to, however you want to word it. But I do appreciate reading, you know, reading and watching some documentaries of, of researchers that because it's not that long ago, there's still individuals that were doing it. They're like, Hey, we knew all this 30 years ago. <laughs> we were fully aware of this 40 years ago, but you know, and, and some of the argument of certain individuals or that were, became the face of the psychedelics movement that got really up in the government's grill in the U S that didn't really, that didn't work out so well. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we're going uh, way off. We're going way I, off script we, here. We, we, <laughs> we are. But I, 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 you know, I once again, if you go back, I, I the thing that I always keep in mind as a cannabis and psychedelic researcher is, first of all, I'm incredibly grateful um, that end users so want to share their experiences. So um, as an academic, as a researcher, it's I'm very lucky that Patients who use cannabis or use psychedelics really want to share their experiences. A lot of the time they feel dispossessed by the tra- traditional healthcare system. They feel people aren't, you know, giving them, uh, treating them seriously or their treatment seriously. And so they want to share their outcomes. And as an academic, that's that's a very rich, you know, uh, vein to mine because people want to talk about how these uh, substances have changed their, substance, their their lives. The second part of that is that most of what we know about the therapeutic potential of both cannabis and psychedelics, we know because end users have shared experiences that are in a non-clinical setting and they found treatment benefits nonetheless. And so um, I feel that at Savvy Mind, our job is to minimize the potential harms uh, that can come with uh, the use of these powerful substances, maximize the potential benefits through set and setting and a very professional biomedical approach, but also within a, uh, an environment that's conducive to healing. Uh, and, and by removing the threat of, of uh, legal penalties associated with these substances that you, you, you know, if you were using them at a rave or something like that would still, still be there, even though uh, they would be, you know, it wouldn't be a high risk, but it's still there psychologically and otherwise. So at Savvy Mind, we can remove all of that risk um, and use them under uh, the medical care of a physician. Uh, with a psychiatrist and, and psychotherapist on, uh, on site and ready to help you make sense of it. But even without all of those additions, people have still managed to find great benefit in these substances as well. And so I, I don't ever pretend that there's only one path to success. We want to remove the obstacles um, to uh, access these substances and to access the benefits of these treatments. But um, but we also understand that most of the psychedelic use in uh, North America is going to be done without the benefit of medical supervision and medical oversight. In fact, the Canadian Psychedelic Survey that we ran last year said found that only 12% of those who use psychedelic for therapeutic purposes um, had uh, uh, medical supervision while they were doing it. So that means that yeah. 88% not, not, of that Not, not use, surprising, you know, I would say, just yeah. from armchair. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that uh, if we actually want to shift that number to more medical supervision, we need to create uh, greater paths to access than, than what we have right now. And unfortunately, mm. right now, you know, it's most people who are going to use psilocybin are going to get them from a friend or they're going to buy them online. Yeah. They're not going to get them in a clinic or from a physician. 
And it is a very different setting to, you know, to use the rave, which I think we're showing our age when we even use that word these days. Um, <laughs> if we go to the rave, you're kind of going, it's a very different experience than purposely going in with the, with the, the eye shades and, and the, and the auditory stimulus in a very like centering and inward facing uh, experience. Talk to me a little bit about just access, uh, financial viability, the economics of all this. Cause the challenge I've heard is that putting it in these, in these environments that are that are safe and conducive like Sabi Mine also can produce a barrier for some of the people that maybe need the help or want the help just financially. Because I understand sooner or later, a business model has to support this or it won't get runway. <laughs> yeah, I think that um, my work in, in cannabis and psychedelics has, has really, my entire adult life has been trying to open up safe access to these treatment modalities. Um, there are three major obstacles to access. One of them is regulatory. And of course, when substances are, are made illegal um, or the regulatory pathways are inadequate, in other words, we have you know, a medical cannabis program that maybe for its first 15 years didn't actually provide access to patients in need. And right now we have legal access to psychedelics through the special access program, but it's highly restrictive and only a few dozen Canadians are gaining access legally to these substances per, per year in terms of psilocybin or MDMA through the special access program. So that's one of the first challenges, a regulatory okay. challenge. The second one is uh, stigma, because mm. when you're talking about you know, I, I, I've been involved in medical cannabis for about 25 years, and I remember sitting with politicians and physicians who used air quotes all the time when they said medical <laughs> cannabis. And so that can be very frustrating as a patient who's gained great benefit from these substances. Sorry, I'm just picturing that whole environment going on of like medical cannabis. I'm like, what? <laughs> exactly. Literally, literally, some, you know, early days with Health Canada, that was happening as well. So we've, we've, come, you know, I think we've come a long way since then, but you still see that around psychedelics. They kind of air quote or an eye roll about, you know, how ayahuasca journeys have changed people's lives. It's become yeah. almost a trope, right? Right. It's become yes. a, a meme more than anything else. Uh, so stigma needs to be overcome as well. And that can be done through data gathering research. The more data we've got, the more patient uh, experiences we can collect, I think the more we can overcome some of that stigma for end users. And then the last one is cost. And uh, yeah. whether it be medical cannabis or psychedelics, these treatments are typically not covered by the healthcare system in Canada. Uh, in a lot of cases, private payers are starting to cover uh, some of the costs of medical cannabis. And with psychedelics, they're also starting to cover some of the uh, cost of ketamine therapies. In oh, fact, interesting. Uh, okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. Veterans Affairs Canada is now covering the cost of at least some of the psychotherapeutic components of ketamine treatment. The part and, that they're they're comfortable with around the thing. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, got it. And mm -hmm. but they're not covering, interestingly enough, the combination of ketamine-assisted psychotherapy because they say there's not enough research on that, which unfortunately disconnects the idea of the ketamine therapy from the psychotherapy, which maximizes the benefits. That's it. That's for another story. We're on the journey and I do appreciate that not everyone is at the same stage of the journey. Exactly. Now at Sabi, we've done our best to open up access by gathering data and working with the insurance company to increase cost coverage through insurers. And we share our okay. data out and, and, uh, uh, and try and encourage them to cover the cost of these treatments. Hmm. But we also have created a, what we call the equitable access program at Sabi Mine, which gives a discount to low-income individuals, um, traditionally marginalized individuals. And we even have our new wholeness fund, which will provide up to 100% of the cost of ketamine treatments 
uh, to patients in need. And, and as a res that, that fund is, um, uh, well, in order to, to populate that fund, we put 5% of all of our uh, income from Savvy Mine into awesome. that uh, new wholeness fund. So we want to try and tackle the obstacles to access as best as possible. And of course, the other way that we do so is participating in clinical trials that remove the cost component uh, for participants in those studies as well. So they can access these treatments at no cost. Back to your, the, what you're doing with psilocybin. That's right. Well, and then it also contributes because you know we're, we're, we we the rising tide of more information and 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 more approvals and more acceptance. Really, at the end of the day, if we really want to improve the people's quality of lives, we have to create more access nationally and to marginalized communities. And to you know, you can really go. It gets quite complex when you start peeling back those layers. Oh yeah, absolutely. If people want to find out more about the Equitable Access Program, they can go to uh, SavvyMind.com and they can just look uh, under that link, and you can find out if you yeah, it's qualify. right in your uh, yeah, it's right in the menu on the top. Yeah, yeah. Equitable Access. I really work. Your, your site's also beautiful. It's it's a very good representation of what people feel when they walk into the to the environment these are these are not stock photography folks this is actually what it's like when you go there it's a, it's such a fantastically beautiful beautiful space mm -hmm. um two more two more clinics curious a little bit of the business model is this mm -hmm. something you've been able to find i'm curious more more importantly from the investor interest now you've opened two more clinics clinics like this don't open themselves there's cost there's time there's energy from a cost perspective is there interest out there from the investment community there is. Um, of course, it's kind of waxing and waning. We're going through economic yeah, yeah. challenges and overall a bear yeah. market right now. And so uh, cash is uh, uh, not flowing maybe the way it was 18 months ago or 24 months okay. ago. But I think that these treatments are providing um, an interesting uh, light at the end of the tunnel for part of that. I think there's a lot of optimism and there's a lot of opportunity for folks who are uh, willing to invest in the right companies right now. There's a lot of challenges in differentiating one psilocybin manufacturer from the next mm -hmm. these days. It seems like everyone's producing mushrooms. Uh, there's a lot of challenges in differentiating one ketamine group from another. I think that Savvy Mind really distinguishes itself by the evidence-based practices that we've taken on and uh, the treatment modality that we've developed um, around uh, around our, our current treatments in Calgary and that we'll be uh, exporting uh, into Edmonton and Victoria as well. And with the opening of those two clinics, Savvy Mind will be the biggest uh, psychedelic clinic group in Western Canada. Oh, amazing. We, awesome. Yeah, mm -hmm. we're, we're just thrilled to be able to offer these treatments to uh, folks in Edmonton and Victoria as well, and uh, to be uh, now providing treatments across two provinces. No, that is congratulations on that. That's amazing, I, and I'm well aware those the, those types of projects don't happen on their own. <clears throat> There's a lot of effort and energy and team to, and funds to put that together. Yeah, if if I could actually mention that, you know, there's so many things I feel fortunate that we feel we've we've gotten right. We're still learning, and it, this is an iterative process. And you've mm -hmm. mentioned the the lovely clinic setting and the aesthetic and. Those things came easy. The really hard part of doing what we do is putting together the right team. And I just want to take a minute to recognize the savvy team, the level of expertise, uh, both from a biomedical perspective, but also experiential people who have backgrounds in the psychedelic community that we've put together and that we've married together in a, the team that we have in Calgary is just absolutely remarkable from mm, awesome. uh, top level psych, uh, psychotherapists and uh, and psychiatrists and anesthesiologists uh, well respected in the in the community and um, all passionate about the work that they get to do with our patients at Savvy Mind uh, to our experienced specialists 
therapist, uh, an old friend of mine, Sarah Brooks, and uh, uh, our amazing nursing uh, team as well, and uh, right down to uh, uh, to every facet of, of Savvy, we've got we've got uh, we've got people there who are committed to giving you an incredible uh, experience and incredibly respectful of your um, uh, your personal needs and uh, the personal circumstances you find yourself in. I can only perceive, and this is my filter, of course, that when you're attracted to work at a clinic like this or an environment like this, there's something a little deeper than this isn't just a job. And everyone I met when I did the tour at the open house, there was a personal, like they had, there was a drive to be there. I can only imagine from a recruiting and building a team, it's hard to find the right people. But when you find those te- people, I imagine they're very bought in. And that's my, I'm putting my own filter on that for sure. <laughs> I, I think you're hundred percent right. I think that people consider this a job, but we also sacrifice a lot to be able to do the work that we do at Savvy Mind. So our psychotherapists are taking maybe uh, uh, less pay to work at Savvy Mind than they would if they were taking on a private client themselves. Right. Um, and same with, I think, all, all levels of our staff. Our nursing staff is having to make room. They're, they work full-time other places in a lot of cases. And just a few days a week at Savvy Mind, it's because we all feel that we're part of the same mission, which is uh, helping our local community in Calgary deal with these incredibly hard challenges of, you know, uh, chronic mental health and pain, but also this greater movement as a whole to shine a light on these uh, incredibly powerful psychedelic experiences and, and therapeutic applications. And um, I think that that, that bonds our team uh, through, with a common mission and a common belief that um, we're here to help people. Which I love it and adding credibility to the whole, to the whole party at the same time. Yeah. Um, curious, last question, <laughs> last question, I promise so I can keep asking questions all day. <laughs> um, where do you get your ketamine from? Do you, are you able to source that locally? Do you have to do that from like somewhere nationally? Just, just curious thinking about as you expand your need for the substance will grow. What is that journey or what's the supply chain look like? Well, ketamine's a generic, which is nice, and so oh, it's right. easily that's accessible right. through our. Uh, we have a partnership with the local pharmacy, and and that works just great. So, ketamine mm, is actually it. very easy to access in Canada within these these highly restricted manners, I should say. Of you course, know, with yeah. highly <laughs> regulated manners, um, uh, as opposed to psilocybin. You know, for a clinical trial that we mentioned, we needed a number of exemptions from Health Canada and permissions to be able to uh, access and uh, distribute the psilocybin as part of this clinical trial. So that's a whole other layer of bureaucracy and regulations and restrictions. Uh, but we're thrilled to have those licenses all in place so that we can uh, work with, uh, with um, these other molecules as well. And like, so psilocybin, does that, you're able to buy that within, with, again, a good point on ketamine being that it is so accessible, but something like psilocybin, you said it's being manufactured, but for you to get access to a trusted source, was that easily, was that easy to find in in a place that you'd really trusted it? The uh, sponsor has an arrangement with a with um, one of the producers in Canada, and that's where okay. they're getting their uh, psilocybin, and uh, we I get see. it uh, distributed to us directly from one of the uh, largest drug distributors in uh, in I the see. world, okay. and so it gets shipped to us like a traditional pharmaceutical. But there is a lot of paperwork um, and uh, kind of uh, uh, applications that need to be done through Health Canada for us to be hmm. able to both store, stock, and also distribute um, these uh, these substances. And of course, in, in our case, we also have placebo control. And so we've got uh, capsules that contain psilocybin and some capsules that, oh, interesting. That, that don't contain psilocybin. And we don't know which is which ultimately. Mm. Oh, interesting. That's another layer of like, we're going to do a, a true clinical uh, environment. 
Philippe, so good chatting with you. I love, thanks to your passion, your candor, clearly, clearly your deep, deep expertise in this topic. I think you, you and I could put another hour on, to, on, on tape here pretty, pretty easy on tape, on digital tape. Um, <laughs> SabbyMind.com, S-A-B-I-M-I-N-D.com for anyone who wants to get some information. My number one job of these podcasts is to get people more curious and get them wanting to go down the rabbit hole. If someone wanted to reach out and chat with you or connect with you in any way, do you have a preferred uh, form of community? There's a million ways, but do you have one that you prefer? Yeah, I'm very easy to reach uh, via Facebook book or LinkedIn, but you can okay, also awesome. just email me directly at Philippe, P-H-I-L-I-P-P-E at SavvyMind.com. I'm happy to answer any questions and uh, uh, regularly do. And uh, yeah, I look forward to, uh, to hearing from some of your listeners. That's amazing. Thanks for putting your email out there. I do. I do appreciate that. But please go check out the website, do some research and and reach out, go down and check it out. The clinic's amazing. I encourage people to go. Ex- it's an experience. It's hard. You can only read about it so much. Go down and, and walk around and maybe yourself or someone in your life might be able to find some support or help there, which I think is amazing. Mm-hmm. Philippe, thanks for your time today. I really appreciated the chat. Tyler, thanks for the uh, great conversation. I really appreciate it. And uh, for the interest in the, the the work and research we're doing at Savvy Mind. I'll look forward to uh, to further discussions about this. We're, we're uh, working right now on the Global Psychedelic Survey, which we hope to launch in March. It's going to be the largest. Oh, I already see a round two here, a conversation. Exactly. Coming up. I was like, oh, you're wetting my whistle now. <laughs> That's it. It's the largest international survey of psychedelic use ever conducted, co-sponsored by MAPS in the U.S. And, um, you know, oh, by, cool. by spring, we'll have some, some results of that. I'll look forward okay, to sharing well, we're with gonna, you. Okay, well, we're going to get something penciled in the calendar here before we, before we hang out. <laughs> Philippe, thanks for, thanks for the chat today. Thanks a lot, Tyler. Have a great day.